Well, it's good to be with you again this afternoon. We're going to be uh, speaking about health and the Holy Spirit, and uh, they are intricately uh, related. A subtitle of this would be called Clearing the Channel for the Spirit of God. And uh, another title would be Preparing for God to Work in Us Mightily. And of course, the Holy Spirit uh, is to uh, provide several functions. Of course, one of those functions, one of the later functions, is actually a power uh, function. Well, when we speak of the Holy Spirit, we need to speak of Christ. What did Christ love to do? He loved to heal. He loved to teach. He also uh, uh, preached some as well. Uh, what did he do more, preaching or healing? healing? He actually spent more time in healing. What did he love to talk about? He actually did love to talk about the Holy Spirit. And uh, what do you think his favorite topic was? Well, we can get a clue from this statement here. Christ the great teacher, had an infinite variety of subjects from which to choose. You ever thought about that? You know, here's the one that's omniscient, knows everything in a deep way. And thus he had an infinite variety of subjects from which to choose. And he had time limits here on this earth. And so he had to prioritize. In fact, we're told that if he just, and he knew these things, if he just said a sentence or two about something scientific, it would have put us far ahead in, of where we are today in that field, which he could have done. You know, he was the creator as well. So he knows a lot of things about science and chemistry and physics that are not even known yet. And he could have uh, put us ahead of course, uh, the scientists that would have been driven ahead by those statements would not have credited him with the fact that they got so far ahead, it's clear. Uh, but, you know, that's one of the things even in our educational institutions I'm noticing. When you look at how our great educational institutions were started in this country, Harvard. Anyone know how Harvard started? Yeah, it was a, it was a seminary. It was a religious school. Uh, and uh, one of their big studies when they started was the study of the book of Daniel. They were enthralled with Daniel. And, uh, and you can see many of our great educational institutions, how they became great was actually because of their desire to study the word of God. But when they've gotten off on you know, tangents and fields and things like that, even though they might have some sort of higher learning, they don't ever point back to how they got to where they, uh, where they obtained that higher learning. Had it not been from a, from a godly standpoint, they never would have been able to reach even the secular education that they feel that they have now. But, uh, but that's just a parenthetical note. He had an infinite variety of subjects from which to choose. But the one upon which he dealt, dwelt most largely was the what? endowment of the Holy Spirit. What great things he predicted for the church because of this endowment. Yet what subject is less dwelt upon now? What promise is less fulfilled? An occasional discourse is given upon the Holy Spirit and then the subject is left for after consideration. So uh, even though it was one of his great topics, one of the which he dwelt most largely, it's not really dwelt with to a large degree very much is what she's saying, and we really need to reverse that trend. Well, in speaking of the Holy Spirit, uh, in fact, uh, in our uh, subjects um, that we deal with, in fact, we're just starting a depression recovery program this coming week on Thursday. We have 20 severely depressed individuals descending upon us. Uh, for their 10-day uh, program, and it's always, um, they've gone through tremendous disappointments in life. And uh, what we teach them is for every disappointment, there's an appointment. Uh, but, uh, 
uh, they won't always reach that appointment if they don't go through the steps. There are keys to turn a disappointment into an appointment. That's part of what they learn when they're there. But I'm just going to ask you today, in this subject of the Holy Spirit, are you ready for a disappointment? Here's one of the most disappointing things that Christ said. You know, Christ said some things that were pretty disappointing. And here's one of them. John 16. I have still many things to say to you, but you are not able to bear them or to take them upon you or to grasp them now. That's the amplified version. But that's a pretty disappointing statement. He wanted to say many more things to them, but he couldn't do it because he knew they weren't going to comprehend it. In fact, it might confuse them further. And it might make them even worse. You know, sometimes uh, that, that's why education is a, is a stepwise learning process. You know, in order to understand Daniel 7, you first have to understand Daniel 2. And in order to understand Daniel 8, you first must understand Daniel 7. You know, it's, it's, uh, there are degrees of learning. In order for you to understand calculus, you first have to understand algebra. Uh, and if you don't understand algebra, you're not going to really get to calculus. And you also need to understand geometry before you get there, etc. And so what was happening is because they didn't understand the algebra and geometry that, they were, that he was teaching them, he couldn't even get close to calculus. And he was disappointed about that. And he just said, there's a whole lot more I wish I could say to you and tell you and reveal to you, but you're not ready. And I've often wondered, you know, if those guys were ready, just think of how much further ahead we'd be today. But because those guys weren't ready, we didn't get to hear all of what Christ wanted to say. So pretty disappointing thing. But here's the appointment. But when he, the spirit of truth, and of course the amplified version gets to the actual root words of the Greek, so it gives you that the truth-giving spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth, the whole, full truth. So what is Christ saying here? He's saying there's truths that he wanted to present to them and they couldn't understand it or bear it, and so he couldn't tell them. But what he is telling them is that they could still learn it. Isn't that exciting? We can still learn the truths that the Lord wanted to teach them. But how can we learn it? Only through the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth, in fact, that's one of the favorite terms that Christ utilized for the Holy Spirit. Um, it's often not given that in popular Christian churches today. They don't call it the Spirit of truth uh, very often uh, because truth is somehow denigrated um, it's not elevated to its rightful place uh, in our churches um, like it should be today. Truth is a foundational spiritual principle um, that is foundational to health, actually. So, uh, for every disappointment, there's an appointment. And he said he would, that Holy Spirit would be able to teach us truths that he didn't teach us. But then he said this, when he has come, he will... First, do what? Convict. Now, what is a convict? A convict is someone who is declared guilty. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does, when he comes, he will declare you guilty. You know, uh, I gave a talk similar to what I gave this morning in Quito, Ecuador, a few years ago. And uh, a day before I had given this talk, they had taken me to one of the wealthy multimillionaires in Ecuador outside of Quito in his multimillionaire mansion in a beautiful, lush place in Ecuador. You know, Ecuador is just teeming with lushness. 
uh, with its um, you know more tropical setting, etc. And uh, uh, he, um, even though he's a multimillionaire, he was a Seventh Day Adventist, and uh, he came to my message there in Quito on the frontal lobe of the brain. Of course, I designed it a little different depending on the audience, et cetera. You know, we have about um, 500 slides that we can give on the frontal lobe of the brain, and so I always have to hide a bunch of slides depending on the audience and where they're at, uh, et cetera. So uh, we gave a different, um, a little different presentation to them, but a lot of the same principles were there. And uh, this was a, uh, a large church, probably the largest Adventist church in the country, you know, uh, well over a thousand uh, people uh, in attendance. And uh, they were uh, coming out, and he knew English. He was a geologist trained at Harvard. And so uh, since he had been trained in this country, he was, um, uh, knew English very well. And he came right next to me, and these people began filing out. He wanted to see their reaction. And their reaction actually was very positive about it in regards to what they had learned and uh, very positive in regards to where they thought they were going to go from there. And it was very different from what his reaction was. Uh, and after he had, he had heard these positive comments, he couldn't tolerate it anymore. And he looked at me and he says, Dr. Nedley, you have done a tremendous disservice here today. And I thought, of course, you know, this was, I was speaking English and it was being translated into Spanish. So I'm th thinking, you know, maybe something was translated wrong, maybe something wasn't quite right, et cetera. And of course, I'm always willing to learn. So I said, um, well, um, tell me, you know, how do you, uh, you know, what was the disservice? He said, the disservice is you made everyone in this audience today feel guilty. Now, in my own mind, when he told me that, the first thing that came in my own mind was, praise God. <laughs> uh, because the first work of the Holy Spirit is to what? Convict. To convict. And in order for us to be able to change positively, we first have to be pointed out where we're doing something that's not so right and how we can live a better way. So it's actually the first step of the process of change. In fact, um, knowledge is that first step. We, uh, in fact, we talk about it in the process of change. You take someone who's unconsciously incompetent. That's where most of those Ecuadorans were before they heard that message. They were unconsciously incompetent in regards to health habits. And you know, there are some people that say, well, you know, ignorance is bliss. Why don't you just keep them that way? The problem with ignorance is it's blissful for only a short period of time. Eventually, the effects of the ignorance catches up with the individual, and then the consequences of their ignorance result in a very adverse life. And their life changes in ways that are just uh, very negative, um, and in uh, things that they don't have any control over. So uh, that's the problem with ignorance. But uh, in order to move them from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent, that's the next step. You go from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. What is it that takes you to that second step? Knowledge. Knowledge. And as uh, Jed mentioned beforehand, my people are destroyed for what? Lack of knowledge. Knowledge is very important, and that's what I was uh, providing in that presentation. But I don't want to leave them there. We don't want to leave them with just knowledge without actually incorporating that knowledge. We'll get to that here in a little bit. But when he has come, he will convict. Now, what, where this Harvard person was, this multimillionaire in Ecuador, um, where he was is what he had learned in his educational institution that was a distortion. But one of the things that people uh, sometimes subscribe to is that all guilt is bad. And so people that believe that will do everything possible for them themselves to not feel guilty. If someone points out something that they're not doing very well, what is their tendency at that point? 
their tendency is to either deny it or to go on the offense and start lashing out at the person that's making them feel guilty. Uh, and they will do all sorts of hoops to try to prevent guilt because they believe all guilt is bad. Now it is true, some guilt is bad. Inappropriate guilt is bad. There's something called appropriate guilt and inappropriate guilt. Inappropriate guilt is always bad. Appropriate guilt is bad only if it stays in the guilt stage. But if you have appropriate guilt, there's things that you can do about that guilt, including asking for forgiveness and repentance and a willingness to change that can actually propel you on a far better pathway. And of course, this has actually been shown in, in studies on forgiveness. Forgiveness has been studied uh, recently. But the Holy Spirit is about change. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do to each one of us, is change us for the better. And uh, he's about true, lasting change for the better, not just temporary changes. And of course, this is where health comes in. This is why uh, health is intricately connected with the Holy Spirit. Your body's health is dependent on two things. What you put into your body, what you do with your body. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, whether therefore ye eat, or what else? Drink, or whatsoever ye what? Do, do all to the glory of God. So the Bible pretty much tells us your health is dependent on that. What you're putting into your body, eating or drinking, what you're doing. But what this Bible also tells us is God is interested in what you're eating and drinking and what you're doing. Uh, and uh, we just need to accept the fact of Scripture that God is interested in these things. Uh, and of course, he's interested in your health. We talked about unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. But the third stage is to become consciously competent. And that's when you actually institute the lifestyle change. Uh, an example of this is a clinical psychologist that I work with. It was actually as a result of um, coming across information that we present about caffeine. Some of it I presented earlier, but uh, we, uh, caffeine does more damage than what I talked about earlier. Uh, and uh, can cause some increased anxiety, irritability, reflux, etc. And she had issues with reflux and some irritability. And so whenever she got thirsty, prior to coming to that presentation on caffeine, she would think of her beverage of choice, which was Pepsi. And thirsty, that means I need a Pepsi. And so she would drink Pepsi. After hearing my presentation about caffeine, when she got thirsty, what do you think she was thinking of? No, she was still thinking of Pepsi. When she got thirsty, she thought of Pepsi. But now, she would say, no, not Pepsi. I'm going to drink water. And she would drink water. And as a result, she moved into stage three, consciously competent. But it had to be conscious. Next time she got thirsty, what do you think she thought of? She thought of Pepsi again. And she said, no, not Pepsi. I'm going to drink water. It took 30 days. And finally, she went to stage four, unconsciously competent. And now when she was thirsty, what do you think she thought of? water. Do you think her life improved? Far better. Irritability went away, her reflux went away, significant improvements in health, and now it wasn't even a struggle. There's a lot of people that don't realize that there is a stage four in whatever you're doing. They think they have to go back and forth between stage two and three all the time and be irritable because it's a struggle and that has to be conscious. But in reality, no matter what the lifestyle habit is, there is a stage four, and that's when the Bible talks about, at thy right hand there are joys forevermore. People that are in stage four in certain areas sometimes are very misunderstood by people in stage one, and vice versa. 
you know, sometimes the people in stage four look at people destroying their health in stage one and looking like they're enjoying it and saying, what in the world? Do those people realize what they're doing? And the people in stage one look at people in stage four and say, how can those guys be happy? Look how happy they are. And they're healthy, but man, I couldn't do that. <laughs> and they don't realize they can. There's a process to it. Ellen White says, those who are willing to inform themselves concerning the effect of sinful indulgence upon the health, and who commence the work of reform, that means they begin the work of reform, even if it be from what? Selfish motives. You know, there are people that come to your weight loss program in your local church just because they want to be able to fit into a bathing suit at an event coming up in four months or five months. What would we call that? Selfish motive. But in reality, what she's saying is those who start the work of reform, even if it be from selfish motives, in so doing place themselves where the truth of God may find access to their hearts. And on the other hand, those who are reached by the presentation of scripture truth are then in a position where their consciences will be aroused upon the subject of health. So what she's saying is even though people want to get healthy sometimes for selfish motives, it actually places them in a position where the Holy Spirit can start working with them. And they can start actually being elevated to unselfish things. She also says this, if one step could be taken without Christ, every step in the way of salvation might be taken without him. It is true that great reformations in outward conduct are often made where there is no express faith in Christ. Many have not even a knowledge of Jesus. But it is a divine influence that makes man capable of any change and leads him to reformation. What makes man capable of any change? A divine influence and leads him to reformation. And that's why the spiritual component is so important in health. She goes on to say, this reformation is the result of a blind faith. And the one who changes the habits of his life without an intelligent faith in Jesus worships he knows not what. But he worships that which leads him to respect his own manhood. And as he takes steps toward the light, increased light will what? Shine upon, Shine upon him that he may see the sinfulness of sin and be led to recognize the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so... What she's saying here is, when we make positive lifestyle changes that are against our own natures, it's a clear sign that the Holy Spirit's working in the heart. And when that Holy Spirit is working in the heart, guess what? That individual is going to be open to more truth and more truth and continue to be able to advance in truth. The end result of positive changes in health can be everlasting life. And in fact, will be if we continue to listen to the spirit of truth. And that's why it's so exciting to be involved in caring for people in need of health and lifestyle changes. In fact, I would encourage each one of you, as a result of this weekend, to involve yourself in caring for people in need of health and lifestyle changes. It's an exciting work to be in. Now, when we know how to prevent or treat disease through nutrition or lifestyle and don't put it into practice, where is the problem? This is someone who's gone from stage one to stage two. They know the knowledge is true. They know it could positively affect them, but they're not putting it into practice. Where's the problem? Problem is the will. Yes, it has a relationship to the will, but the actual problem is in the mind. And of course, that's where the will is. The will is in that frontal lobe. And this is why mental health is so critically important. Here's another statement she makes, one of these profound statements. Sickness of the mind prevails where? Everywhere. Do you think that's more true in our day or in the day that she wrote it? It's actually more true in our day. Depression, anxiety, mental health problems are, are accelerating. Even bipolar disease is becoming much more um, common than it used to be. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. Now this is the profound part. 
nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer have their what? Their foundation here. Now, when you first read that, it seems like, wait a minute, that seems like it's over the top. Nine-tenths of diseases have their foundation in the mind? But, you know, here we are living in a society today where we know how to prevent virtually 100% of all heart attacks. We already have the information. If we put it into practice, we can be virtually heart attack proof, but yet heart disease is still the number one killer. So where's the problem? The problem is in the mind. If we know what to do and we're not doing it, the problem is in the mind. 80%, almost 80% of cancers are preventable, the number two cause of death. If it's still the number two cause of death and increasing, where's the problem? The problem is in the mind. So many physical diseases have their origin in the mind because they were easily preventable if we would just put into practice what we already know to be the truth. And so when you look at it from that perspective, and then of course you look at the mental disease, of course depression itself increases the risk of stroke and heart disease and death from cancer and headache and asthma, and the list goes on. Uh, when you look at what depression itself does, physically, etc., you can see how she uh, was true. Now, it would be going over the top. There was someone in her day, I'll just tell you her, the name, uh, someone who was seen as a spiritual leader in her day, the name was Mary Baker Eddy, who stated that 100% of diseases had their origin in the mind. And that's clearly not true. There are some diseases that clearly don't have anything to do with mental problems uh, and, uh, and should be disconnected uh, from that. Uh, and so Ellen White had the balance. She had the appropriate balance. She said nine-tenths. Then she said this, perhaps some living home trouble is like a canker eating to the very soul and weakening the life forces. Where is the problem? In the home. Sometimes home trouble. She goes on to say, remorse for sin sometimes undermines the constitution and unbalances the mind. There are erroneous doctrines also, as that of an eternally burning hell and the endless torment of the wicked, that by giving exaggerated and distorted views of the character of God have produced the same result upon sensitive minds. So when we have erroneous teachings about God, what happens? Mental health problems can come about. Mental disease can come about as a result of false teachings about God. I remember a few years ago, walking into a 14-year-old girl's intensive care unit room. I had taken care of her the night before and saved her from death that would have occurred as a result of her suicide attempt. And uh, she was an educated 14-year-old. She knew how to do it right. Uh, and uh, she had done it right had she not been found out and intervened upon and thus uh, being able to get there in time to save her life. And uh, so I knew it was a very serious attempt. And uh, her father um, was uh, there in the room. And I just came to her the next day after she was awake and with the program. And I said, um, why did you do this? She said, I wanted to see my mother and talk to my mother. Her mother had died a year earlier from a sudden automobile accident. Unfortunately, her mother was under the influence of alcohol at the time. But she had had, this 14-year-old had had something go wrong in her life, and she wanted to see her mother. And so I just clearly said to her, I said, honey, if you would have done this, you would have not have seen your mother if you would have been successful. I wouldn't. I said, no. You would have been in the sleep of death an unconscious state, awaiting the resurrection. Really? I said, yep, yeah, that's what the Bible says. 
And I said, uh, that's also scientific. No evidence that you continue to live after you die. Uh, and she said, if I would have known that, there's no way I would have ever attempted this. She goes, no one has told me that. So uh, afterwards, I walked out of the room, and her father came to me, and she, he says, Dr. Nedley, I want to thank you so much for what you just told my daughter. She's, he says, I want you to know we're Baptists, and we don't believe that, but I'm sure glad you told my daughter that. <laughs> and I'm glad that she believes that now. <laughs> uh, but in reality, erroneous teaching can produce significant mental health problems. I don't know if you remember Susan Smith backing her car into a lake with her kids fastened in seat belts and they all drowned. And when she got on the stand, she said, my husband and I were having significant marital issues and I knew these kids were gonna be raised in a divided home. And I knew the problems of being raised in a divided home and I thought it would be better for them to be in heaven than be raised in a divided home. So I backed them in so that they could go to heaven. I mean, if that's really true, why did we put her in prison? Life in prison. But yet, erroneous teachings, where it leads, and of course she's also talking about the erroneous teaching of an ever-burning hell, the endless torment of the wicked giving exaggerated and distorted views of the character of God. I mean, can you imagine someone who has a time-limited life in sin now having to suffer in eternal torment for the ceaseless ages of eternity? I mean, where does that crime, or, or where does that punishment meet the crime, or the sentence meet the crime? It's way um, in excess of that. Uh, but yet, that's what distorted views of the character of Christ will end up in God producing significant uh, mental health problems. Then she goes on to say, infidels have made the most of these unfortunate cases, attributing insanity to religion. You heard that before? Religion, don't get too much involved in it. You know, it's going to produce some mental health problems in you. And it's true, it will, if it's false religion, it's going to produce it. But if it's true religion, if it's true Bible religion, it won't. Attributing insanity to religion, but this is a gross libel and one which they will not be pleased to meet by and by. The religion of Christ, so far from being the cause of insanity, is one of its what? Most effectual remedies, for it is a potent soother of the nerve. And indeed, it can produce that lasting positive change uh, in mental health uh, and in physical health that is really exciting to be a part of. Well, I'm going to go through three emotional examples um, in Scripture. Let's see, is someone advancing that for me? Bible tells of a man who was tall, stunningly handsome, wealthy, and well-liked by the general public. And the Lord anointed him to be the first king over God's chosen people, Israel. I think that's taking off on itself. Uh, who was this? Saul. Saul. And we know there are advantages for a man being tall. There's advantages of being handsome. There's advantages of being wealthy. There's advantages of being well-liked. And of course, there's advantages of being king. But yet, despite all of those advantages, Saul began to suffer from significant emotional health problems. Research has documented that negative thoughts which cause emotional turmoil nearly always contain what? Gross distortions. The thoughts on the surface appear valid, but you will learn that they are irrational or just plain wrong, and that what kind kind of thinking is a major cause of suffering? Twisted thinking, major cause of suffering. By the way, in many cases uh, of these people that come to us, I'm sure I'm going to hear it this week as well, many times people will tell me 
basically try to tell me a story that the reason why they're so bad off emotionally is because of unfortunate circumstances that occurred to them. Either they're not good looking enough, they're not wealthy enough, they're not successful enough to be emotionally healthy. Or if they don't talk about that, they'll talk about how their problems are strictly due to others, how others have raised them, how others are treating them, etc. And you know, there may be elements of truth in those things. Life can be difficult at times and beat, beat up on a lot of us at times. But all of those thoughts have the tendency to make us victims because we think the causes result from something beyond our control. But I can tell you the real cause of emotional health problems is something that people have control over once they realize it, and that is the control of their thoughts. They can get rid of the twisted thinking that causes the suffering. And when they do, it can be very empowering. And of course, it's kind of amazing to me, we didn't go into this, all of the happiness studies last night, but you know, the happiest people country-wise are in the poorest locations in the world. And they're not necessarily very good-looking people in those places either. So they're pretty homely, pretty poor, uh, pretty, you know, have had a lot of hard knocks in life, but yet much happier on average than the typical American that has food in abundance and has transportation in abundance and has a much more beautiful home, etc. It's a clear indication that these circumstances around us have very little to do with how happy we are or even how emotionally healthy we are. And of course, Saul is a good example of that. He had it all. He had it all. But yet, significant emotional turmoil. Well, there are causes of his mental illness. One of the distortions is magnification or minimization. What is that? That is where we get things out of proportion. We major in minors and minor in majors. And Saul had that issue. Uh, when Samuel came to him and said, why didn't you obey the Lord? And Saul said, wait a minute, I did obey the Lord. I obeyed him this way, I obeyed him that way, I obeyed him this way. And Samuel says, if you obeyed him completely, then why am I seeing the evidence of the sheep, etc., that he was supposed to get rid of? And Samuel gets a little bit upset. And he says, why did you just point out the ways that I didn't obey him? Why aren't you just acknowledging the, the ways that I did obey him? Have you ever heard those arguments? Be more positive, mom and dad. <laughs> or whoever it is that's telling, you know, be positive. Uh, and, that, and Saul was giving a lecture to Samuel on being more positive. And uh, Samuel recognized that Saul wasn't catching the seriousness of his actions. And as a result of him not catching it and recognizing that he wasn't going to catch it, a punishment was issued. When confronted with his own appropriate guilt, he minimized it and justified himself. One of the things that people do, when they're, uh, the options that they have when they're confronted with their guilt, instead of having that guilt be an opportunity for change. Confucius says, a man who has committed a mistake and doesn't correct it is committing another mistake. <laughs> and I dare say that another mistake is even worse than the first one because you're not gonna have the opportunity to correct it and you're gonna get deeper into the consequences of more and more of those type of mistakes. And that's what Saul did. David Schwartz says we can turn setbacks into victories. Find the lesson, apply it and move on, then look back on defeat and smile. And Ellen White says this, if you have made mistakes, you certainly gain a what? A victory. If you do what? See. See these mistakes and regard them as beacons of warning. Thus you turn defeat into victory, disappointing the enemy and honoring your Redeemer. So in other words, we can honor our Redeemer. We can actually turn defeat into victory. 
if we analyze what went wrong and we put it up there as a beacon of warning so that we won't, won't ever go there again. Well, when confronted with his own guilt, he minimized it, justified himself. And as a result of the punishment that was issued, he began to dwell on the unfairness of his life. By the way, who issued that punishment? Yeah, Samuel was the one who, who announced it, but it wasn't Samuel's punishment. It was God's punishment. So was it a fair punishment or an unfair punishment? because God is always just. And you know, what's amazing to me is many people who dwell on the unfairness of their life actually have been treated quite fairly. Now having said that, I should mention that everyone is going to be treated unfairly if you live long enough. It's just going to happen. We live in a world of sin. Expect to be treated unfairly at times. Yesterday, I was... Um, treated unfairly in a number of ways on my trip out here. <laughs> uh, not to do with anything with OYC. Uh, it was before I, I came to OYC. But uh, I won't get into the details. Well, maybe I should since I just mentioned that. But uh, I, was, uh, I was on the um, uh, phone in regards to a, um, a situation where we need better analysis in regards to what's going on at the clinic. The person uh, doing the computer system was supposed to come up with this analysis about six weeks ago, and it still hadn't come forth. And so I was uh, reaching him and uh, trying to reach him, wasn't reachable, uh, which had been the case for the last few times I tried to reach him because I knew that he knew why I was trying to reach him and he probably wasn't ready yet. Uh, and so finally, after pressing, I did get a call, but it was right before I was supposed to board the plane. So I ended up having to take this opportunity that he was actually calling me on my phone and, and uh, deal with him uh, and uh, talk to him and see where the issues were, et cetera. So I boarded the plane about 10 minutes before it was supposed to board. And I'm getting ready to board on this plane, and I have my suitcase and my hang-up bag. Uh, which is what, how I always travel on American Airlines. And the agent says, you're not going in there with both of those. And I said, well, you know, I'm a uh, platinum member on American Airlines. I've, uh, I've never been denied not taking the hang-up bag and my suitcase. She says, we've got a full flight, and uh, it's supposed to be just a personal item in the suitcase. That's the rule. You're not going with both. This, this has to be checked. And of course, uh, I had my uh, a computer in one bag, which I didn't want to give up uh, because I have all my presentations, uh, not only here, but all of my research for many, many years is on that computer. Uh, and then I had uh, the things that would have a suit, and I knew I was going to a camp where it probably didn't have irons or things like that to be able to straighten it out in time, et cetera. And so I, I didn't, um, I couldn't really say anything uh, in regards to that. And she ordered the man next to her to tag his item and make sure that that's checked. So he says, which one do you want to tag? I said, my hang-up bag. He says, your hang-up bag? He says, let me tag your suitcase. I said, no, that suitcase has a computer in it. You're not taking that. I'm taking that on board. And uh, so he starts taking and tagging the hang-up bag. I said, now, if my clothes come out where I need to, to um, press them and uh, take care of them, then American Airlines will take care of that, right? And, uh, and he says, well, uh, no. And I said, well, I, I said, I still don't quite understand why I can't necessarily check all of these. I've always been able to in the past. He says, well, the only way we would pay for it is if it gets lost, and then you have to submit a report, and then we might pay for it. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, uh, do me a favor. Come down the, the gangplank with me, and if there's no place in the hang-up hang um, closet on American Airlines, then go ahead and check it. But if not, uh, if there is space, then let me just hang it up like I always have done. And he says, I don't have time to go down there. And uh, I said, so? And I went to hand it over to him. And he says, you know what? Just go down there. If there's no space, come back, and I'll check it. 
but he said that far enough away from the lady who told him to do that that I think he thought he wasn't going to get in trouble. So I got on, and it was no big deal, but I, there was plenty of space in the hang-up plant, just uh, like I knew there was going to be. And then I go to, uh, put my, uh, go to my seat, 21A, and go to put my suitcase up above. And I see that there's two bags laying on their side um, that are taking a space. And if we put them uh, in an upright position or change one over to another uh, hang-up bag, I'll be able to put my suitcase there. So I just took the one bag and put it over on the other side, and the guy uh, sitting there says, there's glass in that. Don't move that. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm being careful with it. And uh, so I showed him that. And uh, he stood up right away, and he says, just because you're the last one on the plane doesn't mean you have the authority to rearrange other people's luggage. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I, says, I, I said, sir, I think there's plenty of room here for everyone's stuff without any problems, et cetera. And then the flight attendant came to me and says, you know, you can put your suitcase back here. There's a spot for it. And I said, oh, fine. So I put the suitcase back there and the things got put in the right place. And, uh, and we had a great flight the rest of the way. Just minor stuff. But on the way out the door, since my suitcase was behind, I couldn't leave right after the guy in front of me um, was to leave, because uh, I had to wait for the suitcase, the place to empty out to get my suitcase there in the back. So I was uh, uh, getting ready to leave. And that flight attendant uh, was there as I was leaving and says, you know, sir, you handled that situation so well. She says, I couldn't believe the way that man treated you. She says, you know, what was that all about? And she says, and you just handled it very calmly and, and not an issue and whatever. And I was thinking, well, you should have seen the other situation <laughs> before I got on the plane uh, with your coworker. Uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's, a, it's an example of just little ways that sometimes we can feel that we're being treated unfairly. But in reality, if we dwell on that aspect of things, it's going to produce some emotional problems in us. And Saul continued to dwell on the fact that he thought his punishment outweighed his crime. And we need to watch out for the I can't stand it-itis in no matter what situation uh, involves. And of course, a lot of people, once you get a couple of those things happening, if you get a couple of more in quick success, uh, succession, it's called the anatomy of anger. And that's when things can get out of control. And uh, there's a little song that we teach everyone that comes to our depression recovery program. We used to teach them the fourth day, but you know, we've tweaked things. This is taught the first night now <laughs> uh, that they come to our program. And it's just that simple song. I don't like it, I don't like it. It's okay, it's okay. I can stand it anyway, I can stand it anyway. I'm all right, I'm all right. And what that little song teaches them is just because you don't like it doesn't mean that you can't stand it. You know, there's only one thing a human being cannot stand. That's death. Everything else they actually can stand. But when they tell themselves they can't stand it, that's when emotions get out of control. And I can't stand it, itis is simply a magnification. We're magnifying something far beyond what it was. That was one of the reasons why neither one of those situations, although I was still trying to stand up for my rights in a gentle way as an American Airlines passenger. Uh, if he would have taken both things, you know, it wouldn't have been the end of the world per se. I would have been disappointed. I would prefer it wouldn't have happened, et cetera. Uh, but still, I was also thinking of my wife uh, <laughs> next to me. I told my wife about uh, the situation. My wife is uh, Romanian. And uh, she grew up in Romania under the communist era where you had to utilize your elbows if you were going to even eat uh, in the morning. Uh, and so, you know, there was a fight in the line for the milk and for whatever and these type of lines, et cetera. So she's used to, um, she's used to standing up for her rights in situations like that. In a way, I was kind of glad she wasn't next to me because I could imagine. And she's, uh, the, the amazing thing is, is that they listened to her. You know, I'll say something, that, that agent didn't listen to me at all, but boy, when Erica says something, they'll stand back and they'll say, we need to listen to this girl. And, 
And uh, she seems to get her way pretty easily in many cases. But, um, uh, but there also is a strong tendency in that side of things to have the I can't stand it-itis. And uh, that's when, of course, the emotions can get significantly out of control. We call it frustration tolerance. It's one of the significant mental health benefits that we try to build during our program. Ellen White says this, when trials arise that seem unexplainable, we should not allow our what to be spoiled? Our peace to be spoiled. However unjustly we may be treated, let not passion arise. By indulging a spirit of retaliation, who do we injure? We injure ourselves. We destroy our own confidence in God and grieve the Holy Spirit. So, uh, dwelling on the unfairness of his life caused I can't stand it-itis. And then this aspect, a high self-esteem that was wounded by the people's and especially the women's obvious preference for another leader. Here was the tall, good-looking man that was very well-liked by the general public. And he's coming in after a tremendous victory, feeling great about a victory for the nation. And these beautiful women, most of them between the ages of 18 and 30, are gathered together to sing in beautiful harmony, not just a hundred voice choir, not just a thousand voice choir, but at least a 10,000 voice choir. You couldn't mistake it. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. He heard it the first time, and he didn't think he heard it right. And then they sang it again. And then they sang it again, and it was pretty clear. And his pride was wounded. It wouldn't have been wounded, however, had he not had that pride to begin with. Uh, it was actually an imaginary wound. What's an imaginary wound? An imaginary wound is you think you've been wounded, but actually you really haven't been wounded. It wasn't an attempt to wound Saul. It wasn't an attempt to wound or cross disdain on Saul at all. It was just the exoneration of David that they were trying to get across in there. They probably could have d devised better words. Uh, but... <laughs> But nonetheless, uh, that wasn't their number one intent. And uh, when we have these wounds that come about as a result of slight, uh, of, um, of these imaginary wounds, one of the ways in which you're finding out whether it's an imaginary wound is if you feel slighted. If you feel slighted in some way, watch out. These are people also that have chips on their shoulders. It's almost like they're waiting some, for someone to knock the chip off so that they can feel slighted and feel wounded. It's simply caused by the cognitive distortion of magnification. And the one that we're magnifying is self. Dr. William Backus has written a book called What Your Counselor Never Told You, The Seven Sins That Lead to Mental Illness. And he talks about the magnification of self. Is not this great babble in which I have built? Who said that? Nebuchadnezzar. Who was he magnifying? Magnifying himself. Was his problem a severe one? He was warned about it. He was taught about it. He was given opportunities to turn around. And finally, he had to go to a depression recovery program <laughs> to get it turned around. In fact, he didn't go there voluntarily. Someone had to take him to that program. And if you remember, they fed him raw green vegetables. <laughs> First thing he was put on was a plant-based vegetarian diet. Uh, the second uh, uh, thing that was utilized for him was getting the circadian rhythms in line, the sleep-wake cycles, no more late nights with the lights on. He had to wake up with that morning sun, get his circadian rhythms in balance. And then exercise. In fact, if he didn't exercise, he wouldn't be able to eat. So exercise was part of the program. And then, if you read Daniel chapter 4 very closely, it's very clear that hydrotherapy was also part of the program. <laughs> uh, 
And so he was put on a comprehensive program. And what finally turned him around, though, after all of that, was the cognitive behavioral therapy of getting rid of the magnification of self. I will exalt myself above the Most High. Who said that? Lucifer, the first cognitive distortion. Well, this is what William Backus says in regards to symptoms of pride, to see whether you might have it. Trying to be noticed. Craving attention. Have you ever wondered why the tattoo industry is exploding? Why the jewelry industry is exploding and people are wearing jewels on things that aren't even orifices and, and things that are, etc. cetera. Uh, it's underneath it is trying to be noticed, craving attention. And what's underneath that? Pride. Itching for compliments. Needing to be important. Detesting the idea of being submissive. Loathing the idea of admitting to wrongdoing. Strongly opinionated. Being argumentative. Demanding your way. Wanting control over others. Flaunting your individual rights. Refusing advice. Being critical, yet resenting criticism. Being oversensitive. And finally, thinking you have excellences you don't have. If you have any of these, particularly more than one, William Backus says, watch out. Pride is there. Wounded pride will follow. And significant emotional problems are coming your way. Instead of the examples of Nebuchadnezzar and Saul and Lucifer and others, we have the example of Christ. Desire of Ages says Christ was never elated by applause. Why is that the case? Because he never magnified himself. He never had that, that self-pride. And by the way, of all people, he's the one that probably should have had it, if there's anyone that should. I mean, he was the creator of the world, omniscient, omnipotent, etc., but yet in complete humility. He had to humble himself to come. He was never elated by applause. Now notice this next statement. Nor dejected by censure and disappointment. By the way, that's connected. If you're not dejected by censure and disappointment, you are not going to have that sense of self pride, and thus you're not going to feel wounded when you feel slighted. And then the next statement is even more profound. Amid the greatest opposition and the most cruel treatment, he was still of good courage. Someone who refused to magnify himself and to think truthful thoughts. Nothing gives one person so much advantage over another as to remain cool and unruffled under all circumstances. Who is it that said that? Thomas Jefferson, one of our great presidents that had both IQ and EQ. The Bible says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's the self-esteem we're to have. It's actually esteeming others better than ourselves. Now, yes, we need to have a sense of self-worth. That self-worth is founded in Christ. Christ would have died for just one soul. And so it tells us that we are of infinite value. But infinity is not greater than infinity. And when we think it is, that's when we have the problem. Well, when Saul underwent the recommended therapy for depression, he would feel better again. What was his therapy? Music therapy. Harp music, yeah, harp music, we still utilize that. We have a harp CD that we utilize, very soothing. It's actually uh, hymns done in a very, uh, uh, with a combined classic uh, feel. And uh, individuals love to hear that when they're getting their massage. Uh, helps to straighten those neurons out. However, in time, with the three causes still active and the third cause, wounded pride, becoming even more prominent, he would slip back into anxiety and depression. Although a great man with wonderful potential, he continued to live a selfish life, never completely trusting and obeying God and never giving up his pride for more than a few days. When times would get tough, Saul would desire the blessings of God, notwithstanding his less than complete commitment to God's will. He finally went totally against his conscience by consulting with the devil's servant, a witch when the Lord did not answer him the way Saul thought he should. 
And by the way, beware of demanding that the Lord answer you the way you say that he should. Very dangerous ground. Under tremendous stress, with his enemies closing in, Saul's sad life ended by suicide. An unnecessary death. Had he taken care of his distorted thoughts that started his emotional problems. And uh, we're, each one of us in life are going to have opportunities to correct our distorted thoughts. We're going to have time when people come to us and accuse us of things that have some elements of truth in them. And how we deal with that, instead of self-justifying and minimizing and pointing the finger at others, if we acknowledge the truthful aspects of what they're accusing and determine that we are going to work on it and think on things differently, we can have that opportunity of turning defeat into victory. Thinking truthful thoughts is a vital role. I'm going to close. I'm going to actually go ahead to a couple of statements about the spirit of truth as we close. And I'll just come over to my uh, computer to accomplish this. In that classic book, Desire of Ages, she talks about the comforter. Comforter is talking about emotional comfort. And that's another word that the Holy Spirit is called by Christ. When he, the spirit of truth, is come, said Jesus, he will guide you into what? All truth. The comforter is called the spirit of truth. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth, and thus he becomes the comforter. There is comfort and peace in the truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. She goes on to say it's through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. How does he gain his power over the mind? False theories, false traditions. By directing men to what type of standards? False standards, he misshapes the character. We talked about some of those false standards last night, income and assets and those sorts of things. Through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. So what can be utilized as a tool? Thus, he exposes error and expels it from the soul. Do you think that can be true today as well? Can the scriptures be utilized for that? Absolutely. It is by the spirit of truth working through the word of God that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. And so I ask you here today, do you want to pray this prayer? It's actually the prayer of David. David said, search me. By the way, the context of this is David gives a psalm where he tells everyone that God knows more about him than he knows about himself. God knows us intimately. He knows us pretty well, very well actually. Knows us better than we know ourselves. And after he makes that argument in multiple verses, he then states this to God, search me, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any distorted way and lead me to the way everlasting. And so Saul had a problem with magnification. Your problem might be emotional reasoning, might be mental filter. You know, there's 10 different distorted types of thoughts. We go into it in our lost art of thinking. In fact, Erica said, you should have had a little business card to give that flight attendant uh, when she told you those nice things, handed her a thing on the lost art of thinking so she could find out how to do that too. Uh, but uh, we don't, even, we don't have a, even have a business card in the lost art of thinking, but uh, she was kind of joking. But, um, but nonetheless, uh, there are 10 different ways of distorted thinking, and uh, we can't always see it when we're thinking in a distorted way. But when we ask the Holy Spirit to point it out to us, um, that prayer of David uh, is one that the Spirit will help you with. 
that of understanding where your distorted thoughts are and then helping you to think truthful thoughts. And as a result, you will obtain comfort. You will obtain that peace. The power of right thought is more precious than the golden wedge of Ophir. That's from the book Heavenly Places by Ellen White. By the way, even Bill Gates doesn't own the golden wedge of Ophir. Um, it's beyond his ability to own that. He doesn't have enough assets to pay for it. But there's something more precious than the golden wedge of Ophir, and that is what? Right thoughts, non-distorted thoughts. Emotional intelligence can be improved upon. And I will close with the words of Christ himself. And I'm sorry about this, I copied this from another presentation. Um, you have to look at it real closely to see what it's saying. You shall know the truth. By the way, the Bible, when it talks about knowing, doesn't talk about it in the same way we talk about it. For instance, it says, Adam knew Eve, and they shook hands. No. <laughs> Isn't that what happened? No. Adam knew Eve, and what happened? Eve conceived. What type of knowledge is that? That's an intimate knowledge, an intimate association. And so Christ is using that same word. You shall know the truth. In other words, not just a knowledge of, but it's habit, thought by thought, day by day, is true and undistorted. Ye shall know the truth, and what will be the result? The truth shall make you free. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the role of the Holy Spirit to convict us, to teach us, help us see when we are not thinking truthful thoughts, or when we are majoring in minors and minoring in majors. Help us, Lord, to understand things from their true perspective. And may each one of us pray that prayer of David to search us, try us, know our thoughts, see if there are any wicked or distorted way, and point it out to us, Lord, so that we might not continue to make more mistakes, but to correct our mistakes and turn defeat into victory. We thank you for your desire that we live peaceful, happy lives despite the circumstances around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.